So in the last class before the break, we were in the portion where we find Sri Ramakrishna has visited Vidyasagar. And there, the conversation with Vidyasagar, we find is very interesting. The Sri Ramakrishna in the entire gospel, we find that his general trend of discussion is bhakti. He's speaking in simple language about how to have devotion in God, in our day-to-day activities that we should never forget the divine, that it should be like our toothache. The Ramakrishna's example of this toothache is very significant, that when you have a toothache, you may be doing all your day-to-day activities, but you can never forget the toothache. Similarly, as a responsible householder. We may have to take care of all our responsibilities, but let the thought of God be like the toothache always be there in the backdrop of your mind. It should be the echo constantly. It should be echoing in your mind. So that's what we find in the entire gospel. The idea of resignation, surrender to the divine, but here, when he came to Vidyasagar, who is a Pandit, a very erudite scholar of his own time, a very famous person. We find here his total discussion has suddenly been shifted to that extent of which we can, we can, we can designate it as scholarly. But very interesting, though it is highly scholarly, but the language is very, very simple. The profound truth spoken in simple language. That's the sign of a spiritually illumined soul. That's the difference between a university scholar we find in the academic field, even the simple thing will be enveloped in so much of terminologies that it becomes very difficult for an ordinary person to understand what's been spoken of. But to the contrary, a spiritually illumined soul speaks in a language. It is so simple, but at the same time profound. Just before entering into the discussion, I suddenly remember one of the incidences in the life of Swami Vivekananda. You know, Swami Vivekananda was, when he was in the West, he was in Boston and he was invited to deliver a series of lecture at Harvard University, the famous university. Then also it was world's most renowned university. And those lectures really turned out to be very, very something famous in those days. The students also started discussing about it. It, um, It will be astonished to know Swami Vivekananda was actually offered the uh, position of some, uh, what you say that in the spiritual studies, in the Eastern philosophical studies, he was actually offered a uh, this professorship uh, uh, as a lecturer there. And uh, he was offered, but he declined because he could never accept such a post because he had some greater work to do. And as a monk, he was not supposed to be under the service of any such university. So from both the point of view, he declined 
but he was he created such an impression it's all recorded means the professors who were there from their letters this is recorded that he was offered but he has declined so now very very interesting you you have all have heard of professor james williams he was a contemporary professor in those time when later on he is now considered as the father of psychology his uh, means modern psychology his studies are so profound so this research so william james was a professor in those days at harvard he somehow overheard the conversation between two students who have attended swami vivekananda's lecture so one of the student was saying that i have heard that he is a very extremely scholarly person but i really got disgusted after hearing his lecture the second student asked why what made you feel so dejected well it was not up to my expectation whatever he told i could understand so that was the cause of his dejection that he told whatever he told was all palpably understood so that what happens generally in the university they say that even in american there's a in jokingly there is a very nice way of saying it that what is education in the university education it's a mysterious process in which the notes enter from the notebook of the teacher to the notebook of the student without entering the head of either so uh, so sometimes education can be of that short and here we find whatever he's saying is very very means understood by all clearly understood by all so very profound truth spoken in speak very simple language that what happened when you have realized something so this here also we find sri ramakrishna's language is so simple but at the same time he's speaking of the subtler than the subtlest philosophy of vedanta so let now let us with this introduction enter into the words of uh, sri ramakrishna as has been retold by m in the gospel of sri ramakrishna so he is speaking to vidyasagar what brahman is what brahman is cannot be described all things in the world the vedas the puranas the tantras the six systems of philosophy have been defiled like food that has been touched by the tongue for they have been read and uttered by the tongue only one thing has not been defiled in this way and that is brahman no one has ever been able to say what brahman is it's a simple words but what he is speaking something really was remarkable because even vidyasagar we will find is appreciating that he have never heard such word that everything has been defiled when you are taking food the food which you have touched by your tongue no one else is going to touch it that's what is meant by defilement the food in which your saliva has been mixed that is been defiled so here he is saying all the knowledge including the knowledge of the vedas the puranas what to speak of all the scientific knowledge academic knowledge all those knowledge whatever we know as knowledge which can be uh described which can be deliberated through your language all such knowledge is being defiled so what sri ramakrishna actually is saying here it's very interesting that what's the on, the only criteria for knowledge is realization unless you have realized something unless you have experienced something there can never be any knowledge you may say why even if i have not experienced something when something is spoken of from that do uh, we do can have some knowledge all the conceptual knowledge comes through language but if you really go into the subject you will find what is the process of learning all the language is nothing but encoded experience suppose i have tasted the mango and i experience that it is sweet the sweet is just a word what actually the corresponding experience i know that has been designated as sweet and it has a nice flavor 
Now these two words, sweet and flavor, the mango is sweet and flavor. Can just these mere words help you to explain someone who have not tested the mango? However you may try, throughout your life you may try. It's impossible. So only one who have tested the mango, immediately he will nod his head and say, yeah, what you say is correct. What is happening? Language has encoded your experiences, which can be decoded only by someone who have similar experiences. Unless we have similar experiences, language is of no use. You all can easily understand that. So language is an encoded experience, which can be decoded only by one who has similar experience. Otherwise, language has no meaning. So now all the scriptures, with all its do's and don'ts, everything is something which we can relate through our experience. How the language has helped. In modern science, they speak of dual representation. It's a very interesting theory that when the evolution was happening, biological evolution was happening, the entire evolution was in the process was that the, if we can add more muscles to our existing this uh, muscles, you can multiply the muscle cells. We grow in strength and that speaks of evolution. So we were adding up muscles to grow stronger. That was the evolution from uh, the primitive form of life to the higher forms of life more strength. The more is your strength, the more is the chance you become the predator. And you can prey on others and that speaks that you are higher in the this hierarchical ladder of evolution. But what as a human being it has happened? Instead of adding muscles, we started adding neurons to our brain cells. So instead of becoming stronger, we became smarter. To give a very common example, a small child who has not yet even learned the language properly, very small, infant, he or she is most probably playing in the backyard of your house. And just to have a look what he is doing, you go to the backyard to see what he is doing. You find he is having a branch or a twig in his hand. Some dried branch has fallen, he's having it in his hand, and he's as if acting, doing something, just having some monologues, and he's just roaming about. So you become curious, you go and ask him, what are you doing? The child immediately retorts back, don't come near. I have a sword in my hand, don't come near. The father immediately laughs, no, so the child is, this child is having some this childish pranks plays, but it is not childish. What the child is doing itself speaks of a huge leap in the evolution. No other animal can imagine a branch of a tree as a sword. So this is a dual representation. The branch of a tree is signifying the sword. This simple thing is being converted into language no one can do it. All the mathematical notations is a dual representation. How it has helped. That it is just relating some experience to the next generation so that we don't commit the same mistakes and we uh, grow in our experience. How? The common example, suppose a chimpanzee has fallen on a quicksand and drowned and died. Its son, its grandson, all made the same fate. They all were, uh, they never knew that it's a quicksand. While passing through it, the chimpanzee died, its sons died, its grandchildren died, its most probably great-grandchildren died that way. But as a human being, when you know that that some place is having quicksand, only one display is required. That don't proceed forward, there's a danger. And now we, for generations, will be saved. There's the question of 
meeting the same fate is no more there. So you find this dual representation, which no animal can do it, has made us smarter. And that speaks of the defilement. The moment that from the dual representation you can decode, that is defiled. That's a simple word he's using, the defiled. So all the knowledge which is available in the scriptures, the books of the do's and don'ts, or of all the things we can do technically in a skillful way, all speaks of that knowledge which comes through that process of defilement encoded experience, decoded by someone who have almost similar type of experiences. But here, the Brahman, it is something which cannot be described because of two reasons. What are the two reasons? First is, it's a rare thing. It's a very few person has ever succeeded in really calming down the mind to go to the realm of no mind and go beyond the mind and experience the conscious principle which is beyond the mind and which is the substratum of the entire existence. So this is the process in all the religious tradition, whatever may be the language, they're trying to relate to that type of experience. If you read the language of the mystics, of all the religions, they speak of this non-dual experience. When you go beyond the mind, and there all the religion, actually there all the religion meets. It's not in the doctrines and dogmas. It's in that ultimate realization, that mystical realization of non-duality, where all the religion meets. If you read the language of the mystics, you'll find they're all speaking in the same language, same manner. What happens, this any religious tradition, even if this speaks of God, when anyone who is really absorbed in the religion, not just have, uh, satisfied with the belief system, if God is, I want to realize. And that what happened, and that type of Absorption, the tremendous necessity to realize God, that urge, makes their mind one-pointed. That one-pointedness at last can lead to that realization, which happens only when you can go beyond the mind. To understand the process in a simple language, what happens when we are trying to keep our mind one-pointed, it's very difficult. We find it's almost impossible. Why? all the distractions with which are my mind is quite familiar at present there in my subconscious mind they break they break that one-pointedness again and again but through repeated practice in the modern language they say that what you do repeatedly that forms as if a path in your mind and once the path is formed you start liking it and once you start liking it you will do it beyond necessity and that's what happens with any spiritual practice. By constantly repeating the a contemplation, the contemplative process, gradually a liking develops. The meditation which starts with a will that I have to forcefully keep my mind, keep my mind concentrated, that now goes to your liking. Just whenever you think of God, you develop a tremendous devotion. Because it, of neuroplasticity, a path has been created through your mind. And that contemplation starts giving you happiness. When this will has got converted into devotion, then only the real contemplation starts. As long as we are fighting with the mind, that's never the real contemplation. When it has gone to the, our liking, and there's a constant flow in the mind, that speaks of real meditation. And that, when that gets intensified, what happens? Whatever may be our belief, forget about all the beliefs. Whatever may be our belief, that belief, when it becomes an intense absorption in our mind, what happens? It creates a flow. The neuroplasticity now creates a flow. What's the flow? Just to give a common example. When I am just doing my day-to-day -day activities, someone calls me, I can hear because a small part of my mind 
is sufficient to keep focused for those day to day activities talking cooking whatever it may be but when i am watching the tv some interesting match is going on my mind is so focused someone calls i don't hear what happens the more the mind is focused on my object of concentration my mind needs a lot it the, the entire mind needs to process the object of focus very little portion of the mind remains to take care of all those activities so though the sound is entering my ear is going to the mount going to my brain but it is not getting connected because the mind is totally absorbed in the thing which i am seeing the same thing happens when meditation goes to the devotion your mind is so absorbed all the things starts falling off as you will find in your day to day life the one who is very passionate about drawing painting an artist or a classical singer when they are absorbed in what they like they forget everything they forget hunger they forget thirst they forget they are tired maybe throughout the night they are absorbed in what they are doing why it happens because all those biological activities bodily activities for that also it needs a portion of the mind to process all those biological alarms hunger is an alarm biological alarm tiredness is a biological alarm it needs a portion of the mind but that also has been taken away by your object of concentration so the mind is totally focused on that so when it so happens that at last a small bit of our mind is always fixed to our ego that i am this limited body mind complex it is fixed to that that also is taken when the meditation becomes so intense when that is also taken away there's a collapse of the ego with that there's a collapse of the mind the mind stops for the time being but you find that till now i thought that as i think so i am there's a famous dictum of descartes the father of western philosophy but in the eastern philosophy we find they say when you stop thinking then you really know who you are when the thought stops you are but that amness is no more localized it alone is the entire phenomenal existence almost disappears only that amness remains and that amness has lost its locality to understand it in simple language at present if i close my eyes if i close my ears if i close all my senses if i just can stop all the senses can you stop feeling your amness it is still there and that amness is localized it is located in one place i know i am sitting in one place i am in a particular place though there is no sensation but when the mind it you through your concentration you go beyond the mind then that amness is still there but it has lost its locality it's still we are using the language but that's the realization these are all noise what we are saying that's the realization which very few rare souls have experienced the same william james after studying the mystical experiences of all the religious traditions he told that this has two aspects this all the mystical experiences of whatever religious tradition it may be there neo there's noetic means you feel that what you have experienced is not imagination it is true just the way when i see a flower i know it is there it is true that experience gives you a feeling it is something it tr- is truth so that's why in the the song which we sing for the arati that ramakrishna's realization took him to a situation where is gata samshaya dhrira nischaya samshaya has fallen off all the doubts have vanished dhrira nischaya that he has a tremendous conviction that it's not imagination it's true but at the same time it is ineffable how nicely william james after studying the mystical experiences of all the religious tradition have explained have used these two words to explain that mystical experience noetic ineffable it is something palpably experienced but at the same time it is avang manasagochar that why it is ineffable first very rare souls rare fortunate ones 
goes to that realization, when he comes back from that realization. Now, the entire world doesn't have that bank of experience. They don't have. When just the way if I alone have tasted mango, no one else have tasted mango. Can I explain the taste of mango? Impossible. However, I may use my language. It is impossible. They cannot decode it because they don't have the same fund of experience. Here also, the majority don't have that fund of experience. So however you may try, it is impossible to explain. In some other place, Sri Ramakrishna very nicely says that when someone says that, can you please relate your experiences, the young ones who in future became the sannyasins of the Ramakrishna order, they asked Ramakrishna, can you explain your experience? He really tried. And then at last, inkep, inep, inab, unable to relate his experience. What he's saying is interesting. I'm trying my best. The mother, as if, but my mother, as if, is coming and holding my mouth, is not allowing me to speak because it cannot be spoken of. You cannot describe. So, first reason is it is something which is rare. But as per the realization of Brahman is concerned, there's another reason. We can never explain anything in this world. What we explain is just the attributes. When I say red flower, what defines the flower? Its redness, its shape, its texture. But what the real flower is? Can we ever explain? No. There is something, when I'm trying to explain it, only those attributes which I, I am explaining, and those attributes actually are not of that flower. It's a projection of my mind. The redness, there is nothing called red outside. The, a scientist will say you, it's just a wavelength of light which strikes my retina and there it's work end. The work of the light is over there and it has no color. It has a particular wavelength. It gets converted into nerve impulse which reaches, reaches the so-called color perception center of my brain. It, actually not, it is not actually perceiving the color. A particular nerve impulse of particular, a, a particular nature that gets projected from that center as the red color which comes out and envelops the thing which you are seeing. Our mind is actually a projector. We are yet to develop such a projector which can project five senses. With the modern science, with all our uh, technology, we can have this 3D projection of light and sound. It cannot project smell, touch. It cannot project uh, smell, touch, and uh, uh, the, what you say that the other uh, this uh, sight, sound, smell, touch, and test. So it cannot project the test. But our mind is something even much more technologically advanced. It is projecting these five senses. And these are all projections of the mind. So it's a very interesting thing. But at the same time, it is not imagination. There is something. It's not that there is nothing. There is something which is being projected as this red flower with this texture, with this color, with this smell. All these things are projected with the mind. So there is some existence. But what it is, we can never know. So this is a thing which is a basic uh, understanding even with the science. With science we can understand that. So what Vedanta is asserting that that existence is the only thing which is and which we can never, which can never understand with the mind. Because whenever I'm trying to understand with the mind, it is the mind which is projecting all the colors, sight, taste, smell, all those things the mind is projecting. The way the mind is projecting, I am bound to see that way. So what it is, I don't know. It's only when I go beyond the, beyond the mind to be established in that non-duality, then alone you experience that, which is beyond all attributes. Now anything which is beyond attribute, it is almost impossible to explain with a language. It is only because the language only speaks of the attributes. Sri Ramakrishna gives a very wonderful example in some other place. See, when I'm tasting something sweet, I know it is sweet. 
I can use that word sweet. Sour, I can use. Now we all those who have tasted clarified butter, ghee, you know it is neither sweet nor sour, but it has a taste. But your lang- you fail with the, as per your language is concerned, you fail to explain it. What's the test? It has a test. So if the, if the attributes are not there, you can experience it, but you cannot describe it. So in the words of Sri Ramakrishna, Kamun ghi na jamun ghi. What is the taste of ghee? The one who have tasted, he alone knows. So here you will find what a wonderful thing. Sri Ramakrishna's words are so simple. The thing which are having no attributes, it is almost impossible to describe, though it can be experienced. It is experienceable, but it is not describable. So same thing happens with the Brahman, the substratum of entire, the entire existence with which we are relating within and without. Everywhere we are relating to it, that existence which you cannot deny, it is not mere imagination. Here is the basic difference between Buddhism and Vedanta. In Buddhism, they fail, they speak of subjective idealism, that everything is a projection of mind. Outside there is nothing. Vedanta says, no, there is something that is being projected as something else. Where the mind comes into picture, it projects into something else. So that's the thing. That's the thing which is existence. That is the eternal existence. Nothing can deny its existence. It is Trikala Vadita. It was, it is, it will be. Past, present, future. And nothing can interrupt its existence. So in Vedanta, they assert that alone is truth, whose existence can never be denied either in past, in present, or in future. Simple examples helps us to understand that. Suppose in the twilight hours, a rope is lying on the street because of uh, uh, what you say, the darkness, not sufficient light, I see it as a snake. When I'm seeing it as snake, I can never realize that it's a rope. But actually it was, it is. When I'm seeing it as a snake, snake, still it is rope. And when my ignorance will fall off, when my delusion will fall off, still it remains the rope. It was, it is, it will be rope. So as reality, as a rope, it is the truth. It is absolute reality. As rope, nothing can deny its existence in past, present, future. But as snake, it's not real. For the time being, when I got deluded, it became snake as if. It was not, it really didn't become snake. But I started seeing it as a snake. When? From the inception of the delusion. And it remains the snake when the delusion falls off. Till then, it remains the snake. So snake is not the truth because it is not Trikala Vadita. It was not there. It will not be there. For the time being, Vyavaharika, for the time being, because of my ignorance, it appears as snake. The entire world is like that. With the mind, when I'm trying to relate to it, with all the attributes, all the attributes comes into picture and that's what I am seeing. What I'm seeing is the map of reality. It's not the reality. These examples we give again and again. That when I'm passing through, the, when I'm going through the streets of Melbourne and I just I come back to have an idea of the network of roads, I draw a map and all the so-called freeways I draw, say in green color, all the merging roads with red color and all the exits in blue color. A child sees the map and asks what it is. And I say, it's a road map of Melbourne. Now the child thinks that in really there are some green, red, blue color roads outside there. If he goes outside in search of those green, blue and red color roads, will he ever, ever get? No, he will never get it. For my convenience, I have given those color. That's what mind is doing. Mind never shows us the reality. It's for convenience in our day-to-day activity. It shows, and this is the thing, becoming more and more palpably uh, uh, explainable, uh, comprehensible in modern science. There are so many such even experimental videos in YouTube just to show that how the constantly the mind is deluding us. So as long as we are in the mind, we can never realize that reality which is beyond the mind.
and whatever we are describing has to be within the domain of mind now if you say there is nothing beyond the mind you know the western even some of the western scientists have given such nice examples so there is a one who says that there is nothing beyond the mind it is the mind which is creating all this thing i forgot the name of the scientist is very famous he is giving a very simple example suppose i go to the ocean and with a fishing net throw the fish net to find out what type of creatures are there i throw the net and when i pull the net so many fish and other creatures uh, just comes up with the net and then after studying all those organisms i come to the conclusion that there is no organism which is smaller than 2 cm actually what has happened the fish net the whole of the each of this uh, this fish net the whole each each hole of this fish net is of the dimension of 2 cm so naturally anything smaller than 2 cm cannot be catch cannot be caught by that fishing net they have all filtered out so similarly when we say there is nothing beyond the mind the mind is just filtering out the real existence which is beyond the mind so it's similarly saying there's nothing beyond the mind is just the way the one with the fishing net of 2 cm hole is trying to find out what are the creatures there in the ocean so you will find that how in simple language sri ramakrishna is speaking of this profound truth so again after this discussion let us read this words what brahman is cannot be described all things in the world the vedas the puranas the tantras the six systems of philosophy have been defiled like food that has been touched by the tongue only one thing has not been defiled in this way and that is brahman no one has ever been able to say what brahman is now vidya sagar after hearing this he is a pandit immediately he understood the how profound words he has spoken in a, such a simple language so vidya sagar to his friends oh that is a remarkable statement i have learned something new today that's what he is saying because in such this everything has been defiled see the language that so much of explanation goes behind it in such a simple language in bengali they say eto hoye jawa shob kichu eto hoye geche brahma eto hoyni everything has been defiled brahma has not been defiled so he has vidya sagar never heard in such a simple word such profound truth has been spoken of so immediately out of amazement to his friends he is saying oh that is a remarkable statement i have learned something new today the master now what he has told he to reinforce the statement now he is just uh, describing elucidating some allegory what is that thing? a man had two sons the father sent them to a preceptor to learn the knowledge of brahman after a few years they returned from their preceptor's house and bowed low before their father wanting to measure the depth of their knowledge of brahman he first questioned the older of the two boys my child he said you have studied all the scriptures now tell me what is the nature of brahman the boy began to explain brahman by reciting various texts from the vedas the father did not say anything then he asked the younger son the same question but the boy remained silent and stood with eyes cast down no word escaped his lips the father was pleased and said to him my child you have understood a little of brahman what it is cannot be expressed in words so as in the scriptures it is being mentioned avang manasa gocharam avak manasa agocharam it is beyond vak cannot explain it and in not only that when i just like the taste of ghee is experienceable but it cannot be explained means i my mind processes that test but it is a manasa gocharam because it is beyond the mind even the mind cannot process 
because it is the eternal subject. The subject can never be known. I can know the object. I can never know the subject. The ultimate subject can never be known. Even in simple words, Swami Vivekananda explained it to a small child in America. Swami Vivekananda was once meditating and a small child never knew, never knew what meditation is. So the house in which Sri Ramakrishna, uh, Swami Vivekananda was as a a guest, the child of uh, that house, the host's child, he came seeing uh, Swami Vivekananda sitting in meditation. He never knew that it's meditation. He simply came and sat on Swami Vivekananda's lap. Naturally, obviously, he's opened his eyes. And the moment he opened his eyes, actually the child came with a question. He found that this man speaks of God. So this child never understood that what all those explanations of God, because he's a small child. But he had a very, very pertinent question that I'm not bothered about all those discussions. My simple question is whether God is, whether God is really there. And Swami Vivekananda with a smile told, yes, my child, there is. And the next question, this child's question is very practical. Can you show it to me? That if God is, show it to me, as simple as that. Swami Vivekananda replied, can you see your eyes? So that was his reply. The child never understood that time, but he, re- he remembered this Swamiji's words. When he grew, then he really was marveled by what Swamiji told. With eyes, I can see everything. But can you see your eyes with your eyes? The subject can never be known. That's the first sloka and the second sloka of the Rig Drishya Viveka. With the eyes, I see everything, but I cannot see the eyes. Whatever falls on my eyes, the mind processes it. With the mind, I cannot see the mind. For that, there is some eternal subject behind the mind who can see what's going on in the mind. Who is that eternal subject? That cannot be known. If you know it, it becomes an object. Then it leads to ad infinitum regress. You have to go on. You have to just go on. There's something thinking behind that, behind that, behind that. You have to stop somewhere. And where you stop, that cannot be known. The subject can never be known. The moment you know the subject, it becomes an object. So when you have really realized that it is something beyond the mind, avang manasagocharam, it's beyond the mind. So it is almost impossible to describe Brahman, the one who remains silent. So to his father is appreciating him that you must have somehow understood a little of Brahman. What it is cannot be expressed in words. The other child was just simply uh, relating what has been spoken of in the scriptures. But that actually in real sense make no meaning. Doesn't really make any sense. In the words of, let us go back to the words of Ramakrishna. Men often think they have understood Brahman fully. Once an ant went to a hill of sugar. One grain filled its stomach. Taking another grain in its mouth, it started homeward. On its way, it thought, next time I shall carry home the whole hill. That is the way shallow minds think. They don't know that Brahman is beyond one's words and thought. However, a great man may be. How much can he know of Brahman? Shukadeva and sages like him may have been big ants, but even they could carry at the utmost eight or ten grains of sugar. Now, Sri Ramakrishna has encompassed all the philosophies. He used to say, Agge Hobikano. Never be one-sided. So sometimes we say Ramakrishna is Advaitin. No. Very nicely, if you can relate to these words. These words are so simple, sometimes we cannot relate. Just now he was saying Brahman was Avang Manusa Gocharam. Now he comes that he cannot be understood fully. And he is such, so big that with our mind we cannot conceive him. You cannot think of him. What he actually is saying is very interesting. When through that contemplation we go, when our mind merges in Samadhi, we know that everything is that non-dual experience, that non-local consciousness alone exists. When you again come back to your mind and see the world, you find that non-dual consciousness is appearing as the world. 
So like an Advaitin, I say, this world is not there. Brahman alone is there, which is appearing as this world. So in the Upanishads, when we read Neti Neti, we find Shankaracharya is interpreting it as not this, not this. The Brahman is not, whatever I'm saying is not this, not this, beyond that. And I think I have understood Brahman. But Ramanujacharya, he is again interpreting this word ne iti in a different way. What he's saying, instead of saying not this, he's saying not only this. Now, Sri Ramakrishna, we will find just a few paragraphs later, he will speak of Vigyani. Vigyani is one who has realized Brahman. Vigyani who is coming back from that state and sees the universe, sees everything as the projection of the Brahman. And if he can really relate to that projection, he will, instead of saying not this, not this, he's bound to say not only this, not only this. What actually this means? That with my mind and senses, limited mind and senses, I see the world. But this world, I realize that it is a projection of Brahman. That also I realize. But then I, uh, then I come to the conclusion that the Brahman has projected himself to what I see. But he's even beyond that. To give an example, when the white light falls on the prism, it breaks, we say it breaks into the spectrum of seven colors. Vibjir. But is it true? Actually, there is, there are spectrums which are ultraviolet. There are spectrums which are infrared. My eyes have a limited capacity to see only the Vibjir. So if you say that the light has projected as Vibjir, I'm mistaken. It's not Vibjir. There are infinite spectrums. I see only the Vibjir. There are so many spectrums beyond the Violet, they're ultraviolet. There are so many spectrums beyond the red, infrared. Our world is limited. Even in this world, if you go to the zoo, you will find where the nocturnal animals are kept. It's dark. And where they are kept in those glass cases, there's some very feeble red light is there. Why red light? That's the frequency where our eyes and their eyes matches. They see beyond that. They see below that. We see above that. At night when I see dark, the nocturnal elements can see clearly because at night it is not dark. The sun rays which are not falling directly on the hemisphere, which is on the other side now. But it is the diffraction do speak of some light even on the, uh, this, the dark hemisphere, which I cannot see, that infrared light. There are nocturnal animals that can see. So what is day for me is night for them. They cannot see beyond that above the red frequency. For them, our day is their night. You will find an owl if it has not gone inside its hole before the day breaks. The crows will come and start pecking on it because it's blind. It cannot see anything. It has to go in its hole before the day breaks in. It cannot see in the daytime. So this in the same world, you forgot, forget about heaven and hell. Just as per the animal kingdom is concerned. If a pigeon is here sitting in the ashram, he can hear the wave, the rat, this, what you say, the noise of the waves of the ocean. I cannot hear from here. Their ears are so sharp. You know, the dogs are used for our detective purpose, the smell, the sight. Their world is totally different from ours. The same world appears so differently for so many animals. So now you will find that how interesting is this Ramanuja's interpretation that the Brahman is Lilamaya, the ultimate reality. We don't know why he's projecting, but he has infinite dimension of his projection. We can see only a limit of it. So just to say that he is not this and say some is something limiting him, but it's better way of saying is not only this. That ultimate reality, which after all is not the projection, but has projected itself to so many dimensions, which is even beyond our perception. In the words of Ramakrishna, tar iti kora jayana. You cannot say he is only this. In Bengali, iti, even in Sanskrit, the word iti means end. You cannot say here it ends. Tar iti kara jayana. So 
So from the Advaitic point of view, where you are negating the phenomenal existence, but from one point of the Vigyani, when you come back, you are bound to experience that, realize that fact, admit that fact that he's beyond what even is projected. So that way, when I say that I have understood Brahman, it is a very limited understanding. Even when you are merging, it is beyond mind. And when I come back, I emerge from Samadhi and I realize through the mind what I'm seeing is actually Brahman. Then also I cannot realize him because what I am seeing is just limited. He's, he's something projecting himself far, far beyond my realization. All the ideas of heaven, hell is are all here. It's not in some different dimension. It's only the our level of consciousness changes and here itself, all the heavens and all the hell becomes palpably visible as per our level of consciousness. So there are so many dimensions of existence. All those dimensions of existence is being projected from that Brahman. So he is beyond the mind. And when projected through the mind, he's beyond what, what we are perceiving. We cannot limit him. So all the, the Sukadev and other sages, what they have seen, yes, their realization is something, something more what is encompassing than ours, but it's still just like a one of the big ant. Maybe it can carry one or two more sugar grains, that much only. So that's what he's saying. That So let us again read the words. Men often think that they have understood Brahman fully. Once an ant went to a hill of sugar, one grain filled its stomach. Taking another grain in its mouth, it started homeward. On its way, it thought, next time I shall carry home the whole hill. That is the way shallow minds think. They don't know that Brahman is beyond one's words and thought. However great a man may be, how much can he know of Brahman? Shukadeva and sages like him may have been big ants, but even they could carry at the most eight or ten grains of sugar. So even in the Purusha Suktam, the same idea that is being explained that's this famous sloka. Eta vanasya mahima ato jayascha purusha padosya vishwa bhutani tripadasya mritandivi. So if, if this world is just one fourth, what I'm perceiving is a one fourth of that reality which is being projected as the universe, other three fourths is beyond my perception. The three parts of purusha is high above. In the transcendental realm, it's etavanasya mahima jayas chapurasya. One part becomes the creation. That's it is just one part. So just see how profound thoughts were there in the Vedas, in the Vedanta. That again, Sri Ramakrishna is relating in such simple words. So, so the yutar iti karajana. You cannot in any way conclude by saying that Brahman is only this. As for what has been said in the Vedas and the Puranas? Do you know what it is like? Suppose a man has seen the ocean and somebody asks him, well, what is the ocean like? The first man opens his mouth as wide as he can and says, what a sight, what a tremendous waves and sounds. So you have experienced but you cannot explain. Swami Vivekananda in one of his lectures this relates the same idea with another wonderful simile. He says, suppose a child who is yet to develop vocabulary, the language he is not having yet, he is uh, not having the full fund of the vocabulary, he has not learned the language properly. He just babbles. He experienced something. Now you ask him what you have experienced. With full amazement, what are so many things he is saying? but it is not understood by any one of us because he falls short of language. So Swamiji is saying that sometimes in the Vedas, when we read, we find it makes no sense. The Rishis have realized something which is beyond language. Now, like a child, they are babbling. They find loss of words. So that's why the same thing Sri Ramakrishna is saying that like that someone has seen the ocean and someone is asked, what will he say? Oh, that it is something, what a sight, 
what tremendous waves and sound but that but but does it make any sense to one who have not seen the ocean for the first time with all those explanation i just try to uh, remember for the first time when we all have seen the ocean you have seen the ocean you have heard something ocean is that that expanse is almost endless wide it's something vast there is no you cannot see the shore we have heard and we thought oh i have understood but just try to relate to that feeling the amazement that wonderful feeling when you really saw it and you we all felt that the words just fall short of that experience so that's the thing which is being in, indicated here by sri ramakrishna that suppose a man has seen the ocean and somebody asks him well what is the ocean like the first man opens his mouth as wide as he can and says what is sight what tremendous waves and sounds the description of brahman in the sacred books is like that it is said that in the vedas the nature of the of brahman is the uh, so that brahman is of the nature of bliss it is satchidananda so this word satchidananda this is very confusing with this we will stop our discussion that we say brahman is beyond attributes and here is a fight between the dualist and non dualist they say why the upanishad says that he is satchidananda he is sat chit ananda these are the attributes of brahman see sat swarup is chit swarup is ananda swarup how can he be beyond attributes but if we really understand this word sat chit ananda we will understand that it is not actually attributes it is a negation of all the limitations we have of any existence when i think of myself what i think i was born at certain point of time i am going through some changes and i am going to die at certain point of time the one who have realized the ultimate reality he says no you are sat sat means that is which is trikala vadita it was in the past it is in the present it will be in the future so i i was not born at certain point of time i was beyond that i am i will be so not so just see the word sat is a negation of the limited existence and then immediately when you say oh that you are saying that i was there i am i will be then yes even the modern science says that everything is after all matter and energy so at last as energy as matter most probably i am there so here again the upanishad is negating that limited idea no not inert your chit swarupa the real swarupa is not only sat that i know energy is indestructible but not as energy as consciousness as chit as chetana chetana is the real, is the fundamental principle what i see as things is not the reality it's a projection the real thing is uh, there there's nowadays uh, they use uh, this this terms that it is something not the, what i'm seeing is not real it is epiphenomenon consciousness is not epiphenomenon previously we used to think that consciousness by the conglomeration of matter consciousness has came out even in the modern science they have started getting the inkling that's not the fact in quantum mechanics it's very difficult to deny the fact that without the consciousness you can never think of matter at all uh, we are that we are in future uh, previously we have discussed so many times that it's only when there is a witness then the probability collapses into reality otherwise this reality is not there we won't go to the discussion but just we are giving an inkling of that idea that the ultimate reality is not matter or even energy it is the consciousness so that's why this is a negation of the idea that satswarupa which is uh, indestructible is not matter is not inert it is chit and now again you may feel okay if it is sat it is chit most probably i am going through this uh, dualities of happiness and sorrow through eternity for some time i am just in ecstasy and then again i am dejected this all these waves of happening is disturbing me so again the ananda is a negation it says no that ultimate reality which is chit swarupa which is consciousness is always in bliss it is beyond these dualities of joys and sorrows 
how it is that even with our day to day experience we can understand that that it is that eternal blissful existence we will try to understand with some help of simple examples from this point we will again take up in the next class that how it is ananda swarupa that's what we spoken of by ramakrishna that is sat chit ananda swarupa that what that ananda swarupata means how it is a negation of the duality of joys and sorrows which we experience in our day to day life how it is beyond that uh, with that we will again take up our discussion again in the next class so you will find it is full of that gyana as he is with the pandit with vidyasagar his language has totally changed the way he is relating to him is something very very much profound but at the same time the simple the language is very simple so again we will take up in the next class from here thank you all namaskars